Welcome to Unpeeling the Onion, a podcast that explores the drives and motivations that guide people's best work. Other podcasts ask what people do or how they do it. Unpeeling the Onion asks why. My name is Marcus Banks. Our fifth conversation, which concludes the first season, is with Jason Schmidt. Jason is the director of the communications program at Green Mountain College, as well as a regular contributor to the Huffington Post. We discuss changing paradigms of scholarly publication, as well as innovative approaches to teaching and learning. Along the way, we make delightful detours into the history and culture of Jason's hometown, Detroit, Michigan. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Jason Schmidt. We're here today with Jason Schmidt on the Unpeeling the Onion podcast, who is an author for the Huffington Post, among many other uh, great things. And we're here today to talk about scholarly communication and dissemination, uh, at least for starters. Um, so the first, uh, Jason, you've written in many cases, is, the, where I, ca- I caught your eye was on a piece on Medium that you published just before the new year about how uh, the this publishing company Elsevier was projected to, uh, with the rise of the internet, uh, disappear or at least uh, dwindle, but 20 years later it's still very strong, perhaps stronger than ever, even though we know uh, that the internet uh, affords new modes of scholarly communication. So uh, what do you make of that? Do you think that the way we do this will change or are we still yeah. So ha- how and why? Well, you know, education in so many ways is so out of whack at the moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we have the technology that can disseminate education to, you know, millions or billions of people. And we, you know, see so many of the digital enterprises that have folded and, and been, uh, you know, taken uh, taken over by nimbler, more digital savvy enterprises, whether that be music or uh, movies or magazines or newspapers. And yeah, I, I'm absolutely fascinated at the, the education picture because it is not like that. And it doesn't follow the classic sort of diffusion of innovation, disruption models. Um, you know, so, so we're looking at, you know, an education system where, uh, you know, our, our biggest publishers are making more money or a larger percentage of, of return on investment than Apple computers. And in a world that, you know, I, I don't know what everybody else's college is like, but mine is, you know, consi- consistently having, you know, budget cuts or, or uh, you know, uh, cuts in uh, student technology funds or, you know, other things that are really important to education to make up for the deficit. And we're continuously seeing the deficit on the education side, yet on the, the publishing side, every single year it's, it's increasing, you know, it's having a 10 or 15% um, continuous increase in, in the costs as well as the uh, border and profit. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing, and it's especially fascinating in 2016 where this, you know, digital life is, is so readily available. So yeah, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun thing to write about, and it's a fun thing to really uncover and talk about. So I'm, I'm excited by the topic. From my point of view, it's uh, I agree completely conceptually, but it feels like the. It, I mean, you know, you're actually I, so I'm the librarian. You're you're teaching, but I don't know if do you have a tenure obligations yourself where you are? Will you have to uh, publish or perish? Well, I, I'm on a I'm on a, uh, a academic publishing track here at my college. We don't have a tenure process for. You know, in the classic way, we have a okay. you know, long con- we have a long contract. It's you know comes up every seven or eight years when you're on you know, and I'm an associate professor. So you know, I, I have you know some more more job security than ninety nine percent of society. So you know, I feel pretty confident on that. Even though uh, faculty members may have more job security than they think, I think they feel, or in many cases, they feel 
that well sure maybe i i would love to blog or i would love to flip the class or, or you know whatever it might be but but what what's ultimately going to be evaluated as i get to take the next advance will be publications and and journals and those are the ones that are controlled by Elsevier or Springer or whatever and so that's how why the system seems to perpetuate because the uh, incentives w for advancement for most people anyway are um, are are still traditional for lack of a better word so I don't sure how it, so how would you I mean well not, so, so I have I have a lot of this you know a lot of these things I'm thinking about are also in academic uh, you know kind of uh, Elsevier ish publications out there uh -huh. um, so I so I kind of go both sides of the equation but honestly again in 2016 which side do you think is more you know empowering and, and actually powerful the 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 side that gets you know 45 readers in your you know in in your publication or the side that gets yep. you know 70,000 readers and you know and and, and on CVs, I, I really think that you know a lot of publishing committee or a lot of tenure committees are really kind of taking taking notice to that and thinking, wow, you know, if, if we're doing you know academic quality research, really you know really embedding ourselves and doing a really strong kind of you know uh, deep either journalistic or you know quantitative qualitative study, and we're bringing it to a large audience. I mean, what's not to like about that? It just it makes so much sense in my mind that this does account for you know, justification for, for my career. And, and up to this point, I'm pleased to say it has. And, you know, the amount of uh, kind of, you know, nice uh, 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 feedback and uh, emails I get from, you know, my articles, I'm I'm pretty happy with the, with the direction I'm treading, and I wouldn't change it for, you know, the biggest Elsevier journal in the world, oh, that, whether that be nature or science or anything else. And it, you're taking, I guess, a calculated I don't know if it's a risk at this. You know, it would have been a risk maybe ten years ago. You just feel like this is sort of the, the obvious uh, mode, the the obvious path. Yeah, I, I think it is. Uh, you know, it, it's it's so obvious that I can't really imagine thinking any other way right now. Um, and, and but there's been other times where you know change has been obvious or needed. I mean, look at. So this is my historical grounding I'm kind of fascinated with. But, like, you know, 1862, Lincoln starts thinking about what the heck's going on with education and, and, and comes up with the land-grant college, and that really revolutionizes what college means, and that's the 1860s. Yep. The, GI, the GI Bill, you know, World War II, all these people coming back, we need to educate our workforce. What does that GI Bill do? But it educates, you know, hundreds of thousands of U.S., uh, you know, U.S. populace, and then you know, President Truman uh, comes around and really kind of creates this community college. There's so many opportunities the community college push for America, and and then you know, again in a modern scope, we have a need for education. We don't have the finances for more brick and mortar buildings, nor should we. They're so ridiculously excessive at this point mm -hmm. that we're seeing the digital economy is going to play a massive role, not only in the U.S.'s future education, but in the world. So Obama, in, in his uh, his um, speech in 2000, when he was uh, elected and it was his State of the Union uh, uh -huh. early on, said that uh -huh. you know, that was one of his big goals, is to have a much more educated workforce and society in the United States. Mind you, there was no extra money going into uh, the the higher ed community, so it was kind of you know really lingo for, for there's going to be a bigger push for online curriculum, and so we're seeing a, a ramp up in online education, and it's really at the that is you know at the tipping point right now too, where we're seeing that it could very well be replacing a large quantity of you know brick and mortar undergraduate education uh, um, you know uh, general eds 
in in the very near future, and that's that's exciting. You know, that's that's an exciting you know redistribution of what education means. Do you personally teach any online courses? Or are you mostly still face to face? Right now, I, I mainly teach face to face. I, you know, I'm uh, the director of communication studies, and I've uh, created you know many online curriculums uh, for courses, and I've taught a couple courses online. But I'm definitely more brick and mortar than I am online. And so, uh, uh, you know, myself within the library context, I've occasionally taught these online sort of professional development seminars. But most of my training about how to search particular databases or what have you has been has been face to face as well so one thing i've in the little bit of online that i've done i find that um you actually have to work harder even i guess it's sort of obvious but i didn't really realize it until i was doing it you have to work harder to engage the students and you have to kind of proactively make sure they you know sort of engage with each other in discussion boards so it's a sort of a new so I don't know. So I think we're learning about how people learn through this, as well as you know, simply making it more. Because um, yeah. uh, traditionally, it was always just you show up, you do the. I mean, the, you know, uh, the motivated student would do whatever they could do, but like the you know, there's kind of like how much do I need to do to pass this test? You know, like I think there's still a little right. bit of that online. Well, but yeah, the the upcoming of analytics and the ability to really data mine students' progression in courses is going to hopefully in the next three or four years make the, the courses adapt to the student as opposed to the other way around. If you're having trouble with that section, you go ahead and keep working on it in your style until you get that, and then right, you, right. you know continue to move up. And that, that really brings education in a, in a completely new light. Now, I do want to talk about... So, so yeah. that is that's the standard. That's that that's the the base kind of status quo for the United States, right? But uh, so uh-huh. the, yeah. the the exciting thing is the export of education. We live in a world where Chinese education or India uh, their their education system has amongst themselves said that they do not create good individualized uh, brainstorming, creativity, problem solving. So, you know, you're talking some of the largest populaces on planet Earth that are not happy with their education system. And this is 2016 when technology is ramping up. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense in my kind of shallow little mind that within the next three or four years, we are going to see a significant export of U.S. education to massive markets over in Asia. And it's going to totally revolutionize, uh, you know, the, the export side of U.S. education because we have the brands, right? We have... According to 2016 Times, uh, did a uh, you know the top colleges in the world. 36 of the top um, 100 colleges came in at, and that's significantly lower than it's been in the past. But they they were a little bit more critical. Regardless, they said 36 of the top colleges are in the United States, and we have the brand identity. We have some of the longest you know track record colleges and uh, institutions on the world, and we you know our. Our Harvard, Yale, you know, Princeton—that's the Chanel, Prada, Gucci, and you know, in a in a world that's brand identity crazy and, and Asia markets especially, yeah. you know, that's that's going a long way. So we have the we a have awesome you know creativity problem solving Silicon Valley sort of proven track record. Mm-hmm. We have the brand identity, and we have the infrastructure that's ramping up that's teaching our populace we're the you know the number one country in understanding online education. So it is a kind of a perfect storm that's going to really play out here in the sh- in a very short field of time uh, to really leverage what the United States is doing to the world markets, and that's exciting. So you could perceive, you know, three or four years or however long hence, like a billions, like billions, right? It's Australia has made yeah. a, a a crap ton of money uh, by their education system because of their physical proximity 
to the uh, the Chinese markets for education. So last year they had uh, $13.5 billion um, the Australian economy brought in for their education. That equates to about 1% of their GDP. Mm-hmm. Real soon, I think that it's very possible that the United States will have the ability to have 1% of its GDP uh, coming through this, this education export online market, and that's $160 billion a year. So it is a you know it is a huge cash cow. There's you know more intelligent, brilliant people thinking about this than ever, and it's 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 a done deal. It's just a matter of is it going to be two years or four, but it's going to be yeah. very short short term. So um, and then in that in that so in that world, that's where we would really have to solve the scalability problem of online education and how to how to keep people engaged because like you know. Again, this is more probably in the U.S. context, but three or four years ago, there was the first push towards MOOCs, you know, the massive open online courses, and that was just – that was the very beginning. So, yeah. uh, But, like – but uh, there was, then there was – well, I, I was sort of disheartened that uh, as – you would start seeing, well, there's these, these big student drop-off rates, et cetera, and, and it, it, I was disheartened that it was then spun as sort of a case for why we still need to sort of traditional, you know – Education as we've always understood it, rather than figuring out how to make that that better. But do you re- do you sort of remember the MOOC backlash? Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, big time. I mean, nobody. You know, MOOCs are you know sort of dead. I mean, it was, yeah. it was such a huge thing and flash in yeah. the pan, and yep. and now the completion rate's like literally five percent. Yes. You know, so that's not going to get it. So it's it's a hybrid model that's going to be okay, what's going forward. It. It's, yeah. You know, it's it's yeah. a, the ability to have either. You know, feed on the, the the ground all the time, or at least in a you know a couple week segment, uh-huh. uh, especially in these you know other markets, and and, and it's going to be proficiencies in in English, proficiencies in you know these these uh, you know ideas that are covered in the classes, but you have to actually you know flip the classroom and have some you know face time. I think that's gonna that's gonna be a big thing to to make the the credibility and the uh, yep. the engagement of online a little bit stronger. So you're con or optimistic uh, that as this expansion happens and uh, the world markets are that there's lessons learned from that from that MOOC, those MOOC days. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know the the way the big data is being understood and the way that you're getting uh, you know analytics on students' progression now and making a tailored curriculum to each individual's learner uh-huh. that's significantly different than a MOOC. That's just you know one way, no no interaction, yep. no yep. no tailoring to you. Yeah, and so yeah, it's 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 absolutely gonna you know change the face of it. I want to uh, maybe switch um, gears a little bit away from like the sure. uh, academia, and we might loop back, but like to the natural world. <laughs> so like I'm calling you on awesome. Skype. I'm calling you on Skype, and your Skype name is Hunt Organic, and you, <laughs> and you had and you had this. Uh, you know, I briefly, I, I just discovered, I don't know, well, you can talk about how active it might still be. There's this group called Venison for Vitality that you started uh, in Michigan. Which, yes. But, like, which maybe you can explain to people what it is. And, again, I think it's great, whatever, oh, however well, long it lasted. Yeah, well, thanks. That's that's an oldie. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I, I live in rural Vermont now. I've lived here for a little over four years and, you know, came here to head up this communication program, and it's been a great experience and, you know, best move of my life. And, you know, we, we live in a you know rural cabin and all sorts of great things there. Uh, but so I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, 
And, you know, I'm a, a big, you know, through and through Detroit, Michigan booster and you know, did my PhD in Detroit rock music and how it's had such an innovative future or it's such an innovative past all the way into the future and maintain creativity in the face of economic and kind of corporate demise. Um, so that was kind of my 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 raw, raw Detroit yeah. Uh, growing growing up in Detroit, there's a you know so this is the the venison for vitality hunt organic sort of length of my life. Yeah, is you know there was a huge need uh, in you know underserved areas of Detroit for good food, and that was something that in about 2007 2008 I was really aware keenly aware of is you know it was all all the food banks had Ritz crackers and Hostess and all the other crap that is actually doing anybody a disservice to eat. Yes. And, their number one commodity they lacked was really good quality protein and, yep. and specifically organic quality of that. You know, of course, they're not going to get that in food banks. That's when I was teaching at Oakland University, which is in o- Oakland County, Michigan, which has one of the highest car to deer traffic kill ratios of any county in the United States. So every day I drive into Oakland University from Detroit and I'd see, you know, three or four dead deer carcasses uh, regularly. Uh-huh. And you know, I kind of, I, I, you know, always took notice of that, and it, it started to, you know, kind of really play on me. Is you know, every deer that was dead on the side of the road, if it was harvested quickly, I mean, I'm not talking about feeding like you know rancid meat or anything. No, I'm talking no. about right if away. the deer is killed by a car right away. A, you know, that that meat is just as good, oftentimes, as what was you know killed by a hunter, and it's you know 80 to 90 pounds of organic meat each one. Mm-hmm. So you know, I had a lawyer friend, uh, him and I kind of created this organization called Venison for Vitality. We came up with all the, the legal. We, we um, had to you know go through Michigan State uh, College. They have a large meat certification program. Talked to many of the faculty there of how you can actually, you know, quality assure this meat so you're not making sure you're not, you know, you know, poisoning anybody or creating any sort of undue harm. Went through this whole process of video documenting the, the carcass, showing all sides of it, talking and, and dealing with an approved butcher that then would make sure that there was no shards if there was bones that were broken and if there was any questionable, you know, carcasses that did have bones broken, they would be discarded. But anyway, so long yeah, story yeah, short, yeah, we came yeah. up with this whole sort of checkpoint. We, uh, in 2010, did a trial run. We did about seven deer um, that were donated, and it was a great, great, um, you know, kind of process. And, it, you know, <laughs> I, I, I wish it would have went further. It, it kind of got stalled. Um, you know, we, we kind of eventually, you know, after we w- went through the kind of trial phase and wanted to ramp it up, we, you know, had a little bit of trouble through the state um, agriculture board thinking that that would not be a um, thing that they'd want to back. And it, it, it became a little bit of red tape, but it was an exciting process. And I, I'm... I'm happy to see that other states do that effectively, and I think that Michigan could do that. Luckily, where I live in Vermont, it just naturally occurs, I guess maybe because people are so <laughs> more, uh, you know, game-inclined. You never see a darn deer if it's hit because somebody takes it right away, and that's great. You know, oh, that's oh. Not- <laughs> so, so, you, so you don't have to worry about it where you currently are? No, we don't, no you never see it in Vermont. They're right. instantly gone. Whereas in... Uh, in in we, Detroit, you with see Detroit, it all. What, what, so what, prior to you starting, it would just, like... Eventually, the state animal control or the wildlife official would come and just take the deer away, or like prior. Oh, yeah, that's the, that's how it happens. Is they'd sit on the side of the road for three or four weeks, uh, and then it would just be yeah, the animal control would come and you know discard of it. So yeah, you know, that seemed like a really good you know holistic use of, of anybody's I don't know, protein. So then, um, 
Because I guess I'm trying to... I'm, the link... So it, it appears that in that situation you saw, like, waste or you saw an opportunity. And then you actually did get pretty far with uh, with building a process. I mean, you know, I, I know it's not still currently going, but even the, the fact that you took it to the... I, I, I think a lot of people might have had that idea as they were driving to the university and then never done the first thing, I guess. I guess. <laughs> so... so, so yeah. uh, so you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm good at torturing myself. I like to torture myself regularly with red tape and sitting <laughs> sitting stewing on things. So like, what are what's another example that I mean, of, of a project that you that you've taken perhaps further than where other people might have just had to kind of like, oh, that's a cool idea, but then never did anything like anywhere you well, know, in your in your university. So, or, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, back in 2000, I worked for Atlantic Records. This actually plays into maybe my writing currently, yeah. uh, and that was right when Napster was coming out. And it was funny; I'd always you know talk to my coworkers, and it was right when Napster was really ramping up. And you type any song in the world into Napster, and it would show you the illegal download. And all my all my you know work colleagues at the time at the the record company would say, "Oh, it'll never it'll never affect us because quality is not as good." Um, so. Within three years, I think all of us had were out of a job because it didn't matter. The quality wasn't quite as good. It was free, yeah. and it overtook an industry, and it really changed my mind on what digital economies going forward are about. So Atlantic Records, mixed that with a mediocre 3.0 undergrad GPA where I never felt like one professor really motivated me. Yeah, yeah. Then, then I, uh, you know... After Atlantic Records kind of fizzled, I thought, well, what the heck do I do? And you know, I, I started re- you know researching that you know communication media, you could study new technology, and that's when smartphones were starting to ramp up, and that was something that was interesting to me. I applied for a graduate assistantship, which means you get all your tuition paid for uh, for you, and you just teach two courses to the undergrad uh, the undergrad students. Uh, and all of a sudden, here I am with a mediocre GPA, and I'm maybe because of my media experience, I I made it into the program, and you know. I, you know, in a year and a half had a master's and it was a 4.0 and it made sense and it was exciting. And mm-hmm. I thought, gosh, I'm, I'm the first person in my family. I'm, I'm much more inclined to put up, uh, you know, a drywall and hang crown molding and work with my hands than I've ever thought I would be for theoretical thinking. Yep, yep, yep. And that, that, that kind of parlayed into, well, shoot, man, I'll, I'm going to roll the dice again. PhD, same deal, graduate assistantship, free, uh, same deal, teach two classes, Seven hundred dollars every, you know, every two weeks to live on. It wasn't horrible. It was doable. And you know, then four years later, I, you know, got all my my PhD coursework. I met with my advisor, who was really cool. His name's Jim Faust, out of Bowling Green State University. He's like, "Well, what do you know about?" I was like, "Well, you know, I spent a lot of years of my youth and life working in rock and roll and Detroit rock and roll specifically." And he's like, "Well, you got to do your dissertation on Detroit rock." And I was like, "Really?" He's like, "Yeah." So I was like, "All right, cool. I'm gonna definitely uh, do that." So. I got a uh, research fellowship for a year to do nothing but interview the rock icons of Detroit music uh, to look at why that ecosystem was so successful in the face of economic hardship. You know, from the 1960s on, Motown, and then, you know, that gave way to kind of this whole idea of, of, of strong rock music with gritty and tough and really resilient. Um, so I started looking at why that community really, you know, pervaded over the years and actually had so much more creative output than regions with five times the economic, uh, you know, investment in the community. So it's, you know, creativity, I started to learn, has nothing to do with the money that's coming into a system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's interesting. And then so I, from from there, I, you know, so I did my, my dissertation was, again, on Detroit Rock. It had more swear words in it than any academic dissertation in the history of, of <laughs> education. And 
<laughs> then, you know, after that was complete, I got contacted by this guy uh, working on a documentary. It was called, you know, soon to be called Louder Than Love, The Grandy Ballroom Story. His name is Tony D'Annunzio. And he's like, hey, I saw you did all this, you know, oral history you know, research on Detroit music. I'm, I'm working on this high-budget documentary. Would you be interested in doing the interviews? So I said, yeah. So that was uh, Friday. So that Monday... <laughs> Three days later, yes. I got a call. I got a call from him. And he's like, "Hey, what are you doing tonight?" It's like, "Oh, nothing." He's like, "Well, I got Slash of Guns and Roses. He's all for doing this interview. He's with uh, Velvet Revolver. He's playing the Pine Knob, which is a large outdoor amphitheater. He's like, can you come and do the interview?" So. You know, three hours after that, I found myself in, you know, the uh, Velvet Revolver dressing room is, you know, Scott Weiland is the you know, the lead singer of the band. He's doing circles around Slash and, and the video crew and myself um, on a bicycle as we're interviewing Slash, talking about, you know, the, what is strong about Detroit rock music. And so that's just started, that was the beginning. And so over about two years' time, I interviewed just about every rock icon from, you know, Henry Rollins to the the now late Lemmy, rest in peace, to, you know, Roger Daltrey and Alice Cooper and just, I mean, so many people are interested in what goes on with, um, you know, the Detroit music scene. So that became an obsession and that, that really started the popular press writing because now I had, you know, all these great quotes from all these great rock icons talking about creativity in Detroit. Mm-hmm. So that led to Huffington Post, where I started writing, you know, probably every other week a uh, column for them, and that started getting some, you know, some pretty strong readership. And then I started doing things on technology and uh, kind of like economics, and got a lot of support from Richard Florida, which is you know the creative class sort of guru out of the University of Toronto, and started you know kind of you know, working a little bit and doing some graphs and stuff with his organization, and that really just ramped up my 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 import my impetus for for writing and for really pursuing ideas through and through. And, and so, you know, I guess, you know, in short, uh, you know, that that's kind of progressed to where I am now, which is, you know, sort of being a watch person on this, this education market, whether it be on academic publishing or the future of online education. And it's cool. It's, ex- it's exciting to do this stuff. It's, it's relevant, especially when I tell you that, you know, all this could be a hundred and sixty billion dollar a year industry. Right. That, that gets that gets people turning their heads, man. It's not like you know you're talking boring ass stuff. This is like yep. you know legitimate yep. stuff across the board. So it's it's pretty cool. When you were talking about the Atlantic and the Napster, and so you had an experience where a um, an industry didn't think that there was a you know I guess the famous example was Kodak or or yeah. like, like uh, so you were there at Atlantic, and so I think you it sounds like you're trying to do a similar service for. Um, education like you know yeah totally yep i mean you know education is where atlantic records was in 2000 oh this online thing it's not going to be that big it's not going to you know take away any of the power it's it's not going to be huge it can't you can't teach because MOOCs are what did it and you know it's it's so like the the early dawn of napster it's ridiculous i mean it's like i'm you know kind of have deja vu every day twilight zone yeah totally you know so anybody that thinks otherwise is kind of disillusional so I was just uh, the Detroit icon. That first project you did, the one that was focused, was that uh, Motown people and Kid Rock or who? Who? Yeah, well, yeah. It started with kind of you know it started a little bit uh, past Motown. I paid some tribute to Motown, but then I you know specifically looked at you know one venue it was called the Grandy Ballroom and talked about that venue playing a significant portion. Uh-huh of uh, rock and roll history, everybody from, 
you know, Mitch Ryder to Bob Seger to oh, of Ted course. Duchin, yes. to yeah, yeah. Grateful Dead to Janis Joplin to you know, just, you know, so many icons all played this place. And they all, it, it was early 60s before rock was sold out into amphitheaters. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have the crowd would be like in the dressing room sharing, uh, you know, a scotch with Janis Joplin because the dressing room really was pretty much out in the, the main area of the stage. And it was just this really iconic time where everything kind of blended together. Started the Detroit Grandy Ballroom, and then you went to sort of the broader like Daltrey. I guess I was excited by the Daltrey because I really love the Who. So yeah, yeah, yep. But you know, so I mean, there's there the common theme was the Who really got their start at the Grandy Ballroom. Got, got it. Yeah, they were ready to quit. They did a whole U.S. tour. Uh, in the early 60s, and nobody knew their 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 names or right. their songs, and they were totally like you know disillusioned with with the idea of music as a career. They happened to you know their their last tour stop in the United States was in this shitty club called the Grandy Ballroom in the shitty area of Detroit. There was one light dangling outside. It was a rainy night. They pulled up in their kind of crappy tour bus, and uh, Daltrey says to Towns, and he's like, "Let's just get in, get out, and play this place, and go back home," which meant fly you know back over. Right. To Europe, yeah. Um, so, the, so they go inside, and the second they open the door, they're they're hit with the this strong, strong smell of pot. They, they get <laughs> up into the stage. Every single person that's in this club knows who they are and actually is singing along with the songs. Oh, okay, okay. So Daltrey, you know, turns to Townsend halfway through the set and said, "This is fucking unbelievable. You know, this is this is what we've wanted our whole career." And so they said, "Well, maybe we do have a chance to actually make it in rock and roll." So they went back with their tour manager, the guy by the name of Tom Wright, uh, went back to Lon- uh, London, and you know they said, well, you know, I think we're going to try another tour because this, you know, it ended really well over in the U.S. So they stuck together, and you know the the rest is history. And the funny thing was, their the tour manager, Tom Wright, actually called Daltrey one night. He's like, hey. Uh, this is after they got back from that that U.S. tour. It's like, hey, I was talking to the owner of the Grandy Ballroom, a guy by the name of Russ Gibb, and he's like, Russ needs a, a new manager for that venue, the Grandy Ballroom, and I kind of told him that I wouldn't mind taking that job. And so Robert Roger Daltrey said, "You're kidding! That is so awesome!" Like, I understand you were our tour manager for the last two years, but obviously you're moving up in the world because you took a job managing this shitty club called the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit, and it is, you know, way better than being with some unknown band called The Who. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Little did you know you were going to get all this when you called me to talk about online journalism. No, exactly. Online education. No, I like it. I like it. <laughs> uh, but actually, I should, maybe I should sort of wheel, uh, because actually I think it, I'm trying to, you know, of course... I guess we all we look for the threads, the connections. Like, um, uh, so what you're seeing is it appears if I could see a pattern, and you can, uh, as you see uh, opportunities, like like with the with your studies, the Grandy Ballroom and those things. Those are not quote unquote traditional type academic topics, but you but you were really passionate about it, so you went with it. Um, yep, and then all of my all of my oral history ar- uh, interview archive yep. now has been it's it's archived at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is pretty neat. Oh, you know, that's so. great! Oh, that's yeah. great. in Cleveland, right? So in, yeah. in Cleveland, yep. So then, um, let's imagine ed- education has gone global in the way you described. We can now people can now publish blogs or more digital media they don't have to publish the traditional papers you know the let's sort of imagine that that um has all sort of transpired over however many years how do you you know broad terms how do you think education and research would be different than it is now 
in such a future state world? I'd love to say it'd be significantly different, but I actually think it's going to be very similar. You do? Uh, okay. Lingua, which is the Elsevier journal that just stepped down off of Elsevier, the lead editor is uh, Johan uh, Rorick, and he left, uh, left Elsevier with his six other head editors and 30 reviewers about a month ago. Mm-hmm. And he created the same journal, but now it's going to be called Glossa, and it's oh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. housed open access, and it has the same credibility, the same peer review, the same focus. It costs fifty percent less to manufacture, and it's available to anybody for free. And there's no difference in the quality, mm-hmm. and there's no difference in the credibility. And so that's just that's one small example, which I think shows that if we get away from this twenty five point two billion dollar a year education market and scale back towards open access. Peer review will still happen. Mm-hmm. It's just the you know it's the imperature of the journal can still happen. Yep. It's just you don't have you know a company that's making more money than Apple computers in the in the running. And so that's just one small subsection of the education market and how it will be retooled in the future. But that's pretty darn big when you're talking twenty five billion dollars a year. So that's one small way that education can you know use this technology to transcend you know, the, the, the global space, but keep the same sort of credibility. And that's pretty inspiring. Uh, and, and we're seeing the ramp up of technology, right? We're seeing the, the massive increase of broadband width and the ability for all these, um, you know, new online platforms to, inter, uh, to incorporate data analytics into their measurement of student outcomes. And that's going to be also equally important. So education is going to be massively changed. Peter Thiel, the the billionaire, the guy that wrote the book in 2015, Zero to One, the startup sort of Bible, right? It was, you look at at the back cover, it happens to have, this is a great book by Mark Zuckerberg. This is an awesome book by Elon Musk. (laughs) I mean, like, he he happens to have a a couple name recognition people around him. But he, you know, recently wrote a Washington Post op-ed saying that, you know, he, he thinks education as it is right now is sort of dead. And he, he has this whole Thiel fellowship where it gives away hundreds of thousands of dollars to young, promising high school, early college students to leave college and to actually start businesses. And he's making a big splash with that idea, right? Is it is education about you know 145 contact hours of you know being a warm body in a seat, or is it about displaying initiative that can be accounted on a competency-based model. I don't know. I mean, I know that 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 conversation and even that sentence just gets so many people in education all riled up. Mm-hmm. But regardless, <laughs> you know, you know, when I see, you know, I, I've encountered students with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of loans yeah. and not even having an undergrad degree. They still have three courses to take to get an undergrad. They have one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Granted, they're not the best students, and they obviously have some sort of underlying problem because they've dropped so many classes at you know the wrong times. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But the fact that our education model will even allow yes. somebody to get one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt, not having an undergrad degree, so that means that that money has not actually done one iota of good, unless you're talking education for the the sheer sake of knowing things. Which go to Wikipedia if that's your cause. And, you know, it, it's just, it's obscene. And we're taking advantage of so many people. And it's its never, you know, been more newsworthy and in the limelight. And, you know, it's, it's an important well, time to have these conversations. Well, that, so, uh, yeah, because I think wasn't there a few years ago um, an Obama administration initiative, or maybe just last, uh, to, to rank every university based on how um, 
how quickly students got jobs or these kind of measures? Yes, it's yep, it's out there. The cost in the cost rating indicator. Yep, any college uh, in the country is on there, and it's yeah, it's it's. That was you know, a, there's, there's, that was a course quite highly controversial. It is absolutely <laughs> highly controversial, and it it you know it it doesn't nail the you know nail the 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 metrics by any means. There's a lot of subjectivity in it, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. you know if if a student transfers into your institution after one year at another college, you never accounted in your college cohort, and you know and how do you actually track the salary retention models? It, there's there's a lot of ambiguity in it. Is that something that, that you supported broad in broad terms, even despite what you just said? The, the measurements can, should be improved, or is that is that is that the kind of thing you would be on board with? That the yeah, that, no, I think I, th- I think it's good to get you know to have a menu. I think it's good to actually you know I, I've been at so many colleges in my life, and I see you know the the college marketing side of the equation so often, and it's very similar to business, right? And yep. and students are very similar to customers. And you know, in this world where things can be spun a hundred different ways, I'm glad I'm not a parent right now of a college age student having to figure out what the best college is for the buck. I don't. It's a very complex, tricky sort of scenario. I think anybody that's at least trying to uncover the objective measures for that is is in trying to do that, helping humankind. I think that's not. You know, you're you're not tr- you know doing that to try to hurt people, and I think that's important. I mean, I think it is going to be refined. It's the first measure of it, but yeah, I think that some sort of way to help parents to really see this whole equation through and realize, you know, what their end ends, uh, you know, uh, investment is in this equation. Yeah, I think that's extremely important. On the other side, like the analytic, the actual time and the and learning management system or whatever, there'll, there'll be just ever more data to help drive these decisions for I guess parents t- students uh, policymakers etc that's the world you're you're seeing coming coming to be absolutely you know I mean when big data is doing so good at grabbing all of our information off of our Google you know Google portfolios and our yep. you know personal sh- social shares I mean it makes sense that we can really start to leverage all these unique uh, data points and start to actually paint some more truthful pictures in the upcoming couple of years. So maybe, uh, maybe as a final question, what's a current at, at at Green Mountain, your your current university? What's a thing you're most excited about working on there right now? Well, I'm I'm right now working on a uh, a new book, and it's you know uh, looking at the online education, why it'll be you know America's next great export, and so I'm okay. Oh, okay, so you are so, you're yep, really I'm researching to, this, yeah, yeah. Start starting to starting to you know work it through and think about that, and so that's you know something that gets me into the office at seven thirty in the morning and uh-huh. gets me all ex- excited to you know go through my day, and it's it's an exciting time to be doing all this stuff. Are you in the book proposal phase? Are you? Uh, has it been accepted by a publisher? Or how will you yeah. plan to publish it? Uh, no, I'm I'm working with a management group out of Boston, and they will. You know, there's a couple different publishers that we've talked to, and uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty confident that we'll get a, a good publisher on this, and you know, hopefully see it out within the next year. Okay, that's great. Yeah, so exciting. I, I really did yeah. like the Medium piece. That uh, was there a general reaction to that piece from on Medium? I know you got some pushback from. Uh, at least one person I saw through Twitter. So what was yeah? 
No, it's it, 99.9% of it is extremely positive. You know, it's uh, so I did this medium piece called Can't Disrupt This Elsevier yes. in the $25.2 billion a year academic publishing business. Yep. And it went it went large. You know, I got 15,000 reads off of the, the site Medium, and then my uh, my wonderful friends at Shit Academic Say at the Twitter Academic right. Academic Say, uh, <laughs> they shared it on their blog, and that got another additional seventy five hundred reads. Uh-huh. So it really, you know, it really reached a lot of people, and it was like I said, ninety ninety nine point nine percent positive to you know really be putting this out there. And so yeah, so this that piece was you know just a couple weeks old. I wrote a piece you know about a year ago, which uh, also got a, a ton of reads, and that was called Academic Journals: The Most Profitable obsolete technology in history mm-hmm. and that got 400,000 reads so it's you know you okay. have huge, huge yeah. audiences for these uh, and you know it's just it's been exciting to see these kind of diffuse out and, and and hopefully you know make a make a little bit of a difference um, so this last piece the the uh, medium piece was yep. you know retweeted out by a senator in in Illinois and okay uh, okay it's you know kind of getting to the right audiences and Okay, so it's an so, exciting time to have these conversations, right? And that's it. Well, and, that, and the fact that you could even do such a thing on, on a platform like Medium, you know, I mean, we guess Medium's been around a few years now, but it's still fairly new, you know, like like Huffington Post as just as a counterpoint. Like, I mean, that's also great to have your content there, but in a way, that's more of a, a traditional magazine slash newspaper, you know, sort of re, re retooled for the web. Whereas Medium is just anybody within. With an idea, you know, like. and and you're seeing a lot more politicians. That was just there was just a great uh, uh, article I think in Washington Post on that, where a lot of the politicians are preferring to go to medium instead of going to a you know kind of a large opinion uh, sort of write up in a in a large paper because there's you know they can say exactly what they want. There's nobody else you know kind of finagling the wording or the yep. the sentiment. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's it's a great source and it's credible. It's you know it it gets darn near the same views that I get on Huffington Post, and I'm a fan. Good, great. Yeah, I've, you know, I, I've, I haven't gotten the – occasionally I'll do a thing on Medium, and it, I just uh, – as it's just a writer, like I like the platform. But, you know, like I like how they, they've thought pretty well about how to integrate links. I mean, you know, you've obviously you've written on it. Like it's a pr- mm-hmm. pretty pretty intuitive compared to early days of web editors, so – it, and it really accepts artwork and creative sort of looks nicely. So I know a lot of a lot of authors now, as they are releasing their book, will put you know excerpts of said book up on Medium and do it in a very kind of creative, artistic way. And yep. it's a great way for authors to drive sales to their books. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, th- well, thanks again. I should I, I should let you get back to your research for your next book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you have any? Thanks, te- do you have any? Thank you for listening to this fifth episode of Unpeeling the Onion, and special thanks to Jason Schmidt. This concludes our first season. For more details about what we discussed, please visit the show notes at unpeelingtheonion.tumblr.com. 